In the teachings of Christ known as the Beatitudes, Jesus says that blessed are the meek. In today's sermon from Pastor Ed Henning, he is going to talk about brokenness and humility in our lives due to our sin and developing an attitude of brokenness and humility as part of our daily walk with Christ. With that sermon, here is Pastor Ed Henning. And I want to encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Psalm chapter 51. That's page 474 in the Pew Bible. And I realize people to my left, your screen is blocked pretty well, but... Again, if you want the outline, it's on our church app, if that helps you. 474 in your pew Bible, Psalm 51. I probably prayed as much as studied for this message this week because uh, this is a very, very important message. Again, we're doing a summer of unpreached topics, a lot of things that you don't hear messages about. And today we're going to talk about a broken and contrite spirit before the Lord. Psalm 51, David's the author. King David said in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This morning, we're going to talk about brokenness and humility in our lives due to our sin and developing an attitude of brokenness and humility, not as a one-time thing, but hopefully generated through our lives. And I hope that you do take notes, but even if I would prefer, even if you don't want to take notes today and look up the outline later to really reflect. And may these notes be a template, something that you use throughout this week and the weeks to come to maintain this broken and contrite spirit that David talks about. We really need that in our culture and our world. You know, the United States, when it was established with our forefathers, with the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, George Washington and others said that this only works as a government if its people are religious, its people are committed to the teachings, in that time, the Word of God, because we were founded as a Judeo-Christian country. And so as our churches go, as we as people, as Christians go, so goes our country. We are to be, and it was intended for us to be, the moral conscience. We're not to become a theocracy. We're to be the one who influences the culture around us and speaks into the lives of those who are in authority. But too many times, we've lost our saltiness. We're not the light that we should be because we allow sin to take root into our hearts and our lives. Instead, as Christians, we want painless Pentecost. You know, those disciples, they spent time up in the upper room and and seeking God, and then the Holy Spirit came. Many Christians want a laughing revival without really dealing and confessing their sin, but wanting the power of the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Christians want gain without pain, a crown without a cross, a resurrection without the death in the grave. How many Christians do you know have ever walked into a Christian bookstore and said, hey, do you have a book on mourning and weeping over sin? That's not going to be a bestseller, is it? It's not something that we normally look into in our lives. 
And so, as we heard on Mother's Day from Jason Crosby's wonderful sermon on the Beatitudes, on Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we get this idea of being poor in spirit. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jason said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he preached a great message about that as I listened to it earlier this week. And in that verse, we're going to extrapolate that and go even deeper. We're going to build on that whole thought because that word poor there, there's two Greek words in the New Testament for poor. And one of them is to just be below the poverty line and to be able to scratch things together and have enough money to eat and feed oneself and take care of their needs. And the other Greek word that's used here in Matthew 5.3 is to be a beggar, to be absolutely destitute, to be hopeless, to need outside help beyond anything you could do. And that's what Jason talked about, and he did a great job preaching about that. And so we're going to take a quick look in that backdrop in our mind. It's Psalm 51, but I want to spend a lot of time there with how to apply this to our everyday lives as we develop broken and contrite spirits. And if you want a great book on this subject, Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamuth has a book called Brokenness, The Heart God Revives. And I encourage you to read it. It's a good short read on this whole idea of having a broken spirit before the Lord. Well, our context today is Psalm 51. And the background for that is out of the seven psalms that speak of seeking God's forgiveness, Psalm 51 is one of those. In fact, Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 were written at about the same time, dealing with David and his sin with Bathsheba, committing adultery, getting her pregnant, and then the eventual setup for the death of Uriah by David, the murder of him, and then Nathan the prophet coming and telling him that story and pointing at David's face and saying, you are the man. David could not do anything but realize that he was responsible for his sin, his His child died as a consequence of that, and he's facing the conviction of his sin as he writes Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. So let's be reminded of where we were last week because we want to look more intently to Isaiah's condition before a holy God because it mirrors our condition before a holy God. So first of all, on your outline, seeing God in all of his holiness, as we talked about last week. We can't really understand the depth of our sin until we realize how holy a God is that we serve, that we stand before. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah saw the holiness of God, but second of all, he saw the depth of his sin in verse 5. The depth of his sin. And Isaiah said, woe is me, for I'm lost. The King James says, undone. I'm a dead man, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The third thing we looked at last week was seeking the forgiveness of God. Seeking the forgiveness of God. Look at verse 6 of that same chapter up on the screen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's look now at Psalm 51 and David's act of contrition before God. Notice, first of all, his plea for personal forgiveness. Plea for my forgiveness. This is all very personal. This is David and God alone, heart to heart, sharing this confession. Look at verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. First two words there, have mercy. The same Hebrew word that's used in that famous benediction, that priestly benediction. The Lord be gracious to you. David recognized as he begins this prayer that there was a breakage between the relationship between him and God. There was a division. There was a separation because of his sin. Sin separates us from God, and that's why we need to come back to him with broken and contrite and repentant hearts to rebuild that relationship. Then there's no doubt as we read the New Testament that all of our sins are going to be forgiven. They're going to be atoned for. But we need to daily come with a contrite, broken, repentant heart to keep that relationship going as the way that God desires for it to be. So David appeals here to God's great love, And great compassion in these first two verses as he seeks forgiveness. He says in Numbers 34, Lord talking to Moses, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. It is only God through his mercy that can grant forgiveness. David did not deserve forgiveness. You and I, we don't deserve forgiveness. But yet God, through his faithfulness, as we read, his grace, his mercy, he wants to pour out in love his forgiveness to us. Well, David now confesses, second of all, and takes ownership of his sins through the presentation of my sins for confession. David confessed his sin, he named his sin, he owned his sin, and he took responsibility for it. And do we do that in our own lives? We live in a culture that likes to play the victim game. We like to rationalize, we like to justify You know, Flip Wilson, the comedian from yesteryear, the devil made me do it. We try to find all kinds of ways to obscure the responsibility for our sin. But do we name it? Do we put a name on it? Do we claim it? Do we bring it before God? Look at what David does in verse 3 of Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the sacred heart, in the secret heart. Notice David uses three synonymous words to talk about the depth of sin. He says transgression, iniquity, and sin. Three synonymous words to emphasize the depth of what he's talking about. He never argues with God about his divine justice. David knows he's deserving of all the judgment of his sin. 
In verses 5 and 6, David shows his utter helplessness before God with his sin. He said, sin separated me from you, God, at birth. And so it is for us as well that we are born with a sinful nature. We're born with a predisposition to be independent of God, to break his laws. And it begins in the womb. And God wants truth, but we are lacking that truth. He wants truth in our hearts. And then David says, teach me wisdom. This is the sinner crying out in desperation before a holy God, asking for divine help and forgiveness and to be rightly related to God. All of us, most of us in this room have computers of some kind, whether it's our cell phone, iPad, or a personal computer, laptop. And I'm sure most of us have some kind of software on there to protect it against viruses, against malware. And we run those. Some of those run on their own. Some we have to manually turn on ourselves, but we are constantly scanning for viruses to remove them because if they're left unchecked in our computer, it's going to slow it down and maybe even eventually cause it not to work as well. Well, the Holy Spirit should be scanning our soul for viruses all the time, and we should allow him to have the free will to be able to do that. Sin left unchecked will affect our whole entire lives. And as you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit searching in your heart, you might see a bad attitude that's starting to take root, a little resentment or jealousy or a little complaining or a little negativity. But the deal is it's little now, but it won't stay little very long. It will take root. It will become a habit in your life. Hebrews says, don't let the root of bitterness develop into your life. In other words, we need to catch the bad attitude or whatever it is when it's small and eradicate it before it creates a bigger problem. God's scanning of the viruses and you might expose some trash talking you've been doing, words that have hurt people, critical words, backstabbing words, angry words, gossiping words, or God may show you that there's some lustful fantasies that you've been exposing yourself to or watching things you know you shouldn't watch or hearing things or going to places that you know you shouldn't, or things that you've lingered on that you should have fled. Or it could be that we've told some lies lately, or at least spoken more or less of the truth. We either exaggerated or didn't share all of the truth. And God wants to confront those now so we don't get into a damaging pattern of deceit in our lives. In fact, that's the reason we need to see and attack any sin right away, because sin unconfessed becomes repeated Repeated, repeated until it becomes a habit in our lives. And then it starts to poison the people around us that we care about. That's why the psalmist David said this in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, <clears throat> know my heart, try me and know me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That should be the prayer of our heart continually. Search my heart, O God. Look and see and point out anything in my life that separates me from you and hurts others. Well, then we see David's prayer to be clean. Prayer for my heart to be clean. <clears throat> Look at verse 7, if you would. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean, David said. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then verse 17, which is the key verse in this whole chapter, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. If we come to God on his terms and humble ourselves and are willing to repent, he will never, ever push us away. He will always accept us. He will always bring forgiveness to us. In verses 7 and 9, David is asking for complete forgiveness from God, the eradication of his personal sin. In verse 8, David wants to have the renewal of the joy he has lost while living in his sin and breaking his relationship with God. Now, joy he's talking about here is that continual undergirding contentment that we have in our lives, that we have peace with God, that we can say, it is well with my soul. That's what the joy of salvation is that he's talking about here. It's more than an emotional experience. In verses 10 through 12, he's asking God to rebuild their relationship back to where it was before he sinned with Bathsheba. And it's interesting, it seems like if I've experienced in my life, as I uh, turn away from periods of sin in my life, God always brings me back to the place on the road that I left the road on my spiritual journey and then continues on the way. And that's what David wants, is that personal revival to come to him. And before revival can come to each of our hearts, there needs to be removal of pride and an attitude of humility added there. When we're humble, then we can walk with God. And so personal revival begins when we draw a circle around ourselves and we kneel in that circle and say, God, let revival begin with me. And then let it begin, as Peter says, in the house of the Lord. We often think we want to see the culture transformed, but it begins with the transforming of his people first, and then the Holy Spirit flowing out into that culture and transforming their lives as well. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says a very interesting thing. He says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Think about that. God has two addresses. He is high and lifted up, rightfully to be adored, but he's also there with the one who is humble and has a contrite heart. He is at both places at the very same time. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's how you maintain an attitude of a broken and contrite spirit is to walk humbly with your God. We have a lot of application I want to point to, and so we're going to get to the application part right now, false ideas about what brokenness is. Some false ideas. Brokenness means we're always sad and gloomy. That's what many people think, that you have to be sad and gloomy. The truth of God's word and receiving it brings release and produces a deep sense of joy, as I've already talked about in your life, that you're rightly related with him. Brokenness, second of all, means we are morbidly introspective, that we, all we do is focus in, inwardly and we look at our sin. If you ever get the chance to read anything about Martin Luther, 
He was morbidly, morbidly, how many times can I say it, introspective. Before he was a believer in Christ, he would spend hours in the confession booth with the priest. And his priest, who he was confessing to, said, Martin Luther, you're, you're too introspective. He says, you're looking too deeply. And it was said that Martin Luther would leave the confession booth after being there for hours, already worried about the next sin he would commit that would cause him to have to go back and to be in the confession booth. Being overly introspective can lead one to too, be too preoccupied with yourself, leading to false humility. Yes, we need to be aware of our sin, focus on it, but know who we are in Christ, know that he forgives us, and know that he wants us to move on walking in the Spirit. Thirdly, brokenness means we shed tears over our sin. Tears alone are not evidence of a contrite heart before God. They may be part of the experience, but emotions alone do not always lead to repentance. And then brokenness means it only comes with great tragedy. There are times that God will bring something into your life to bring you to a place of repentance, of of heartache, to show you the consequences of your sin, but that's not always true. Sometimes it's merely in your daily private worship time, in your devotion time, coming across a particular verse of scripture that convicts you of sin, that points something out that you hadn't even been thinking about because the Holy Spirit is prompting you. And so brokenness does come many times through tragedy, but Sometimes it's just that still small voice, as we sang about it just a few moments ago, of God coming and speaking to us where we are in our personal lives as we're before the Lord. Well, true biblical brokenness, then, if that's the false idea, is what's true biblical brokenness? First of all, it's sorrow over sin. It's sorrow over sin. And I talked a little bit about this last week, about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Paul lays this out in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And by the way, I made a few mistakes in the notes. It should say 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10 there in your notes. But it says in verse 8, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. For though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. Though only for a while, and here's the key, verse 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly repentance is when something happens to point out the sin of your life and you respond appropriately and you go to God and repentance is walking in one direction in your sin, stopping and turning around and going the opposite direction. It's turning away from our sin. And when we're prompted with sorrow because of our sin and we turn and we, we repent, we're responding in the way that God desires for us to do. But too many times we have what's called worldly sorrow. We're sorry that we got caught. Bill Clinton, if you listen to his confessions of his situation with Monica Lewinsky, he wasn't repentant. He was sorry that he got caught. And many times what we do is we get sorry that we got caught in our sin, and we ask for forgiveness, and then we try to figure out ways to do the same thing without being caught. That is wrong, and that's worldly sorrow. That is the contrast between these two things. 
True biblical brokenness is shattering our self-will. Shattering, shattering our self-will, not our human spirit. We're not talking about that. But it's our preferences, our rights, the things that we believe selfishly that we should have. He says in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here's the key, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now we see in the world around us people who are sinners who are not believers who do great things. LeBron James, Kevin Durant, the Golden Warriors just won uh, the NBA title this week. We see amazing things. Bill Gates, we see amazing things with computers that he does. We see great charitable generous things that people do. And those are all good things. But he's speaking here about the spiritual life, about your relationship with God and perspective of the relationship you have with others, with the Holy Spirit. We have to shatter our self-will. Then the stripping of self-reliance, which follows closely to this as well. The stripping of self-reliance. Paul thought of this in Philippians chapter 3. It's amazing to read these verses and think about uh, the turn that he made in his life. In Philippians 3, 4, Paul said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, if you think you're religious, I'll put my religiosity up against yours because mine is superior. Look at verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He believed that he didn't do anything wrong when it came to following the law. Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish there means dung, means manure, means human waste. And he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he says that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had it all. He had the equivalent to two doctor's degrees. He was high up as a Pharisee, but he realized it was all waste. He was, had his ladder against the wrong building, climbing that ladder, and realized that he had to give it all to Christ. It was all waste. We have to turn away from our self-reliance. And then softening of the soil of our heart. I love this picture. Because we live in Iowa, Illinois, we have a lot of agriculture around us. Hosea the prophet said, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Breaking up the clods of resistance that keeps the seed of the word of God from penetrating our heart. And pride is the big clod of resistance that we need to continually push away from our hearts and our lives. Believers who have broken hearts for God are receptive and responsive to the teaching, to the preaching, to the reading and studying of the word of God. We're like clay in the hand of a potter. When you see a potter, a wonderful 
uh, uh, artistic person that could take clay and put it on a wheel. And he can shape that clay into numerous different types of vessels, each unique and different. And that's how we need to view our lives, is that God has, we're the clay and he's the potter and through circumstances and through the things of our life, he is shaping us, he's molding us to make us what he wants us to be. And a Christian with a contrite heart doesn't get shaped by the circumstances around them, but allows the circumstances to help mold and build character in their lives. And then lastly, the true biblical brokenness is found in Saul's relationship issues vertically and horizontally. It says 1 John 5, but it should be 1 John 1, 7. It says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We must be humble. We must be honest. We must be transparent before the Lord about our sin and our lives. We need to own it. But then we also, it says here, to have fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be honest and transparent and humble with them as well. Think of it this way, much like a house. And, and the house is built on the ground, and, but the roof is off, and so the roof means that you're open to what God wants to speak to you about. But then the walls are down as well because you take down the walls of defense because you want to have a humble, open, transparent relationship with all of those that you are in relationship with. Martin Luther said this, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. So our application here is that God is not as concerned with the depth or the extent of the sin we commit as he is about our attitude and our response when we're confronted with our sin. Sin is sin in God's economy. He's more concerned about your attitude and your response when he points out the sin in your life. And when we are broken and contrite in our spirit, we won't care about confessing our sins to one another, it says this in James 5. We don't care about what other people think of our sin because We are playing to an audience of one. We want vindication, forgiveness from God alone. Let's look at Psalm 51, verses 13 and 17, as David shares the promise of my revived service to others. As a result of forgiveness, God put him back on the stage to minister to other people, not only as king, but in many different situations as you read the story of David. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God, my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David's saying, give me the opportunity to show sinners the way back to you, God. Use me once again, in verse 13. David praises God in verses 14 and 15. Blood guiltiness, he's talking about either a judgment resulting from a grave sin requiring a death penalty or God's mercy shown to him because of the sin of Bathsheba and the sin of having her, her husband Uriah killed in battle. 
David shares that before sacrificing animals to the Lord for a sin offering and other offerings, which in verse 19 he, he espouses to, he says that's good, but he says here the condition of the heart is more important than the sacrifice. This is very important. Christianity is not a religion of ritual. It's not a religion of just going through the motions and trying to get God on our side. This is a relationship that he wants us to have with him. And God is concerned all the time about the condition of our heart. Think about Samuel, when Saul, the kingdom was going to be taken away from Saul, and God was going to raise up someone else to take his place. And Samuel goes to the house of Jesse, and he goes through all the brothers. And God says, not this one, not this one, not this one. And they said, where's the... Where's, you have any more sons? He said, yeah, he's out in the shepherd field taking care of the sheep, and he's the youngest, but you don't really need him. And God prompted Samuel to say, bring him in. And he was the one that was anointed to be the next king because in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, man looks on the outward, but God looks to the heart. God is always interested in our heart condition, and he knows the thoughts and the motives and the intentions of our hearts. The key here is verse 17, as we shared before. Well, step number four in your outline, seeking the blessings of walking continually with a broken and contrite heart. Here's the things that you need to do, the attitudes to have on your, in your daily life to maintain a humble spirit between you and God. First of all, God draws near to us. Isn't that an amazing thought? We read that passage in Isaiah 57, and he's high and lifted up and on his throne, but he's also there with the heart of the humble, personally, individually. That's what James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God's looking for humility putting away our preferences, our pride, our, our desires to say, God, what is it that you want for me? What is the attitude that you want me to have? Second of all, God's beating heart and desire is made known to us. In Jeremiah 29, he says, if you seek me with all your heart, I can be found. God creates a deeper love for him and others. We talked about that in 1 John chapter 1. We, as we fellowship and we're right with God, as we said, then our fellowship is sweet and right with those that we are in relationship with. Fourthly, God creates in us a deeper experience in worshiping him. And we'll read about that in verse 19 of Psalm 51 in just a moment. But lastly, God, under this point, God wants to use us and bless us. And I think we just forget about this all the time. I just believe that God wants to bless us more then we want to be blessed. I believe he wants to use us more than we can imagine him using us. We sell him short on this, but we have to come with the right heart and the right attitude. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said it this way, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in, great, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel, vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, 
useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. God wants to use us, but we have to come on his conditions to let that Holy Spirit flow unfettered through us with others. Jennifer Kennedy Dean, these quotes are in your notes there. She said, the broken person will find that all of the resources of heaven and all of the Spirit's power are now at his or her disposal. And unless heaven's riches can be exhausted or the Spirit's power can be found wanting, he cannot come up short. He wants to pour out the blessings upon us. So let's look quickly at the last two verses of Psalm 51 and see how David finishes his great plea for forgiveness. He speaks much like Isaiah as he thinks of his fellow Israelites after his forgiveness, his petition for national blessing. His prayer, his petition, his seeking after God, his intercessory prayer for the Israelites. He says, verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 19, here's where the worship comes in. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. They believe these two verses are talking about the future when Israel, because of their sin, is off in captivity. They had two captivities in Assyria and Babylon. And it might be pointing to the time when they were ready to return. And Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, comes back with a group of people and begins to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And then once again, these verses will be fulfilled that God will be delighted in the heartfelt sacrifice after they return to God in the rebuilt temple and offer those sacrifices. So the point is, as we, as you and I go spiritually, so goes the world around us. So goes our family. So goes our neighborhood. So goes our church. So goes our community. And ultimately, with groups of Christians and believers, our region, our country, and the world. Making sure that we have a broken and a contrite spirit before God will bring personal revival to our hearts. And when we come to God on a daily basis, may we see him in his holiness, see the truth about our sin in light of his holiness, but also the truth of our sin, as James says, in the mirror of the word of God, the law of liberty. That when we look into that mirror, that we won't be merely hearers of the word, but we'll be responders of the word of God. Our key thought is this. Samuel Chadwick says, it's a wonder what God can do with a broken heart if he gets all the pieces. Does he have all the pieces of your heart, of your sin? He's willing to take them. He's willing to take that broken heart and put the pieces back together again. But not only that, to make it even better than it ever was before. Because then he's got his spirit in that new heart, that new creation, that new opportunity. And you know what? It's something that we do daily. Second Corinthians 5 talks about the old, that all things are becoming new. Old things are passing away. It's a daily process of giving him our heart and the pieces of our selfishness and the idols that we formulate and saying, Lord, here I am with a broken and a contrite heart. So my goal today is to show you how important God wants for his people to utterly depend upon him. And to see sin as he sees it. And it's then and only then that we begin to accept God's forgiveness. And we begin to understand the depth of the sacrifice for our sin. 
we begin to understand in a small way the cost of Calvary, of what Jesus did to pay for your sin and pay for my sin. And I hope that we'll leave here today with a broken and contrite heart before God, that we leave here, as Jason Crosby said, utterly destitute in spirit, but needing him to help us to inherit the kingdom of God and to share with others what we have found in our experiencing. So I hope that you take time this morning as we sing a song and then sing a second song. I hope you take time this week to take out this paper and review the verses and to reflect and think about the cost of your sin and what was paid for it on the cross with the very precious blood of God's one and only son. Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamas said, Revival is the release of God's spirit through broken people. Revival is the release of God's spirit through broken people. May we come. May we come to God today with broken hearts. And as we prepare to sing, I just encourage you. The altar is available if you need some time to just come up and be alone with God and pray. We have two songs to end the service today. There's time. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Because the most important thing you can do is have that broken and contrite heart between you and God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ed. If you'd like to listen to more sermons like this, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Otherwise, if you'd like to listen to the latest sermon, download our mobile app. On iPhone or Android devices, the Pleasant View Baptist Church mobile app contains sermons from Pastor Ed Heading and also gives you information on events in the Quad Cities and a prayer wall where you can submit your prayer requests. You can find it by searching Pleasant View Baptist Church Bettendorf in the App Store. On behalf of the congregation of PVBC, I'm Jeremy Jones, and we're again thanking you for listening to this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, where we're connecting, growing, and serving in Christ.